Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Guillermo del Toro conquers the Toronto Film Festival with his new film, The Shape of Water. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of the podcast. I am here at the Toronto Film Festival, um, and we are winding down our time here. It's been a busy week. Uh, I was here with uh, a crew from MTV. Sammy was with me. Sammy is now back in New York. I stayed an extra day, so sadly Sammy is not on the intro this week. Apologies, but don't worry. She'll be back soon. Um, so I was able to, in between all my MTV duties of um, doing some fun on-camera interviews, which you guys can check out on uh, MTV's Facebook page and MTV's YouTube page, um, I was able to sneak in one podcast guest, uh, and it was a hell of a one. It was, it was kind of the perfect guy to talk to. Um, last night I saw The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's latest film. Uh, Guillermo is, of course, a beloved uh, filmmaker, anyone that counts themselves as a uh, film fan, as a, um, as a movie geek, uh, worships this guy. Not only are his films, um, you know, the pinnacle of artistry and, and soulful, but he's just a genuinely cool guy and um, is... Is, is somebody that's always a pleasure to talk to. So I just literally left uh, Guillermo, um, had a nice uh, chat with him, uh, n- not as long as our usual kind of conversations, uh, but because of, you know, film festival atmosphere, there's not enough time to do the full kind of like 45-minute thing. Um, he's been on before. If you want to go back into the annals and get like kind of a more of a career conversation, uh, go back into the Happy Sad Confused archives, and there's a good conversation there. Uh, but if you're interested in what he's up to now, this is a fantastic chat. Um, the new film, The Shape of Water, and don't worry, there aren't really spoilers in this. I mean, they're, they're, we touch on some aspects and hint at some things, but I don't think if you haven't seen the movie, this is going to ruin anything for you. Um, but this film uh, has an amazing ensemble, including uh, the amazing Sally Hawkins. I'm using the word amazing a lot. Apologies, I'm a little fried. But um, she is fantastic in a... Uh, basically a mute role as a, kind of a janitor in a government facility, uh, I think in the early 60s, I can't remember the exact um, year, um, that kind of strikes up a relationship with a, a creature, kind of a, a, a human-fish kind of hybrid played by uh, the incomparable Doug Jones, who has been in many of uh, Guillermo's works over the years. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful love story, um, it, and, and it's a fantastic ensemble, too. Richard Jenkins, Michael Shannon, Michael Stuhlbarg, Octavia Spencer, um, they're all fantastic. And um, I got a chance to see this last night at the premiere here at the Toronto Film Festival. And if that's not enough um, through just happenstance, I happen to be uh, sitting with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, humble brag. It, it was not even a brag. I mean, it, it was just the luck of the draw. Um, I'd seen Benedict uh, earlier in the festival, and we had a nice chat um, just off camera at a party for his film, The Current War, um, and I knew he was uh, catching a bunch of films there. He was actually very up on sort of like what was at the festival and was seeing a bunch of the things that I was, and sure enough, we ran into each other last night. So that was fun just to see him again and to see this film. For those that don't know, Benedict was actually uh, going to be in Crimson Peak um, and had to drop out, uh, and of course Tom Hiddleston took over that, uh, that role. So in this conversation... We talk a lot about The Shape of Water, a lot about sort of the acclaim it's getting. Um, Guillermo just won a big award at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, it played at Telluride. Um, this is one that's going to be a, a big awards contender throughout uh, the Oscar season. Uh, we talk about uh, the development of this, how the film um, actually was intended to be black and white. Um, we talk about uh, his upcoming film, um, 
version of the Fanta- of Fantastic Voyage that he's going to embark on pretty soon, um, as well as touching on uh, his take on it um, and Star Wars and the Universal Monster Universe. There's a lot covered in a, uh, a relatively short period of time. So thrilled that I got a chance to see Guillermo and um, talk about this um, beautiful, beautiful piece of work. So without any further ado, I'm going to toss it off to that conversation. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused on iTunes. Truly, uh, your time and effort to spread the word and just click on a little rating or uh, say something nice in the review section is very meaningful and would be much appreciated. So in exchange for that, I'm going to give you this a conversation with one of the great filmmakers of our time. This is Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro is about to be podcasted again on Happy Second Fuse. My friend, it's always good to see you. Um, this is uh, an amazing film, The Shape of Water. It's uh, I don't know how you're still standing. You've been traveling the world, but there's a lot of love for you out there. Um, my experience last night was unique in that I, uh, I think I would have loved the movie anyway, but I sat next to Benedict Cumberbatch, and that always enhances an experience of a film. Night. Yeah. <laughs> he, he seemed to enjoy it, too. I don't know if you talked to him afterwards. Yes. Um, but give, give me a sense. You talked about a lot of interesting things on stage last night in terms of, like, themes of the film, in terms of accepting our own faults yeah. of ourselves and others. Like, I'm just curious, like, when you approach something like this, are you underlining a few themes with your co-writer and saying, like, this is, this is what the story's really about? It's about something, but this is what really it's, we're trying to talk about well, here. The way, the way I, I normally interact with co-writers is I interact in uh, very specific points. It, it's great to interact on the beginning, because you always, the hardest thing to break is a blank page. And having a collaborator is the best. Yeah. You know, you can, I don't know if it's the best for them, but it's the best for me because I, I, I immediately know what I like and what I don't like, right. you know? And, 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 and then you go on your own for a while, and then you interact again, and then you go on your own again. And you stay alone during pre-production, production, because you're the only one doing the, the rewrites and all that. But with Vanessa... I, I I think that a lot of people expect that uh, I would write the hardcore stuff and she would write the sappy parts, or is the opposite, right. you know? There's a lot of this, the thriller spy stuff that she came up with, yeah. and and uh, some of the hardest uh, dialogue lines, mm-hmm. and and I came up with a lot of the the tender stuff. Right. You know? She kills the cat, and you uh, and you I do the, the, rem- oh, you the but but she, but she she wrote the speech of the general. For example, when oh, wow. he when he says, you know, you know, you you will be in a world of shit, and you know, uh, the universe will have an outline with your shape on it, blah blah. blah. You know, uh, uh, it, it's really a great, it's a it's a fluid collaboration. You talked to also a little bit about sort of, um, you know, accepting failures and bumps in the road, and how that kind of actually feeds you, and that that's what defines us. That's sort of what propels us yeah. onward. Um, you know, we talked, and I was, I was a huge fan of Crimson Peak. I really was. I'm sure you were. But, like, did that experience and kind of the, the different kind of reactions to it affect you? Did it, did it bum you out? Well, it, it bummed me horribly. I mean, you don't take it in stride. It, 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 it easier after. No, it almost, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be dramatic, I'm, but it really, really almost, like, made me say, damn it, let's Let's not do this anymore. Because what happened? The mistake I made, the critical mistake I made, is I made it for fifty million, and that made 
I, I force the hand of the studio to sell it to a really wide audience because they need 150 right. to so market it and everything. Yeah, exactly. yeah. so uh, when you do that, then they're not going to be able to sell a gothic romance in that way. So they sold it as a Halloween horror movie. Right. And, uh, you know, that's like uh, you want a lawn bag for your mowing, and I give you a Gucci bag. And they go, it's small, it's impractical, it, right. it can take only 50 leaves. Right. Yeah, yeah, but it's not a long yeah. bag. Yeah, but you sold it like a long bag. <laughs> Where are the jump scares? I don't need all this beautiful romance. And <laughs> and, and, and look, it's a peculiar movie. And, and it's a peculiar movie. Oh, they're all peculiar movies. All the movies I've done are peculiar movies. Sometimes they connect with another, sometimes they don't. You know, if we had in the past, for example, Hellboy 1 and Hellboy 2 were gracefully propelled into profit beautifully by DVD and Blu-ray. Sure. Now we don't have that. So, you know, you have a one chance to recuperate. Does the roller coaster that is inherent with any filmmaker's career um, make this kind of early run, and it's going to probably be a long run, or hopefully going to be talking about this for a while, make it sweeter, give it a different kind of perspective? Um, oh, yeah. No, well, listen, the, the thing is, uh, you were asking, what, what did I learn? What I learned is you got to do the, the weirder ones for less. So when I pitched this movie, I knew I, the movie is, looks like 60, 70 million. Right. It's done for 19.5. So I knew I was cramming that, which I said yesterday, so that the movie was sold by uh, Searchlight, so it's going to sell it for what it is. So... When you have a, a beginning like this, an auspicious beginning where you enjoy it, of course, it, it, you not only enjoy it, you are grateful and you're humble because you've been on the other side. Yeah. And this, you know, every movie that is successful is a movie that by, but, but for the grace of God was not a failure. Because yeah. you're taking the exact same risks that make a movie not connect are the exact same risks that make a movie connect. What? I mean, it's early to kind of like derive lessons out of now this experience, but like seeing the reaction of this and you're talking about, you know, even on the peculiar scale, scale this is probably on the higher end of peculiar yeah. for you. But the fact that whether it makes money or, or not, and I think it will, but like the, the people are connecting with this, like in a profound, deep way, the emotion in the audiences has been really significant. Um, there are some lessons there, I guess, being true to yourself. And yeah, I'm taking risks. I mean, look, I've been doing this for 25 years, which is in itself a blessing. You know, it's a long run. I have only made the weird movies I want to make. I have never made a movie for them, quote-unquote. And, and, and the thing is, um, you know, all you, can, all you can say is, I mean, if you're truthful to yourself. Yeah, at least you can rely on that. Good or, good or right, exactly. But, but people' reaction, the reaction to this movie reminds me a lot of the reaction to Pan's Labyrinth, which was, uh, these are two points, well, there are three points where I have re-created re, re, re myself. The first one was Devil's Backbone, yep. which was after the huge failure of Mimic, you know, creatively, that's a movie that visually is the way I wanted it, but everything else it was tampered with. So I, I said, I'm going to, do Devil's Back when I, I did it and for me it was my first movie it was a rebirth then Pan's Labyrinth because it really was I said I need to go back to a, a purer crazier smaller format right. 
it costed 19.5 too, like oh, that's this amazing. one. That's your sweet spot. <laughs> that's sweet spot. But, but they also, it was the way uh, the movie was received is the way this movie is being received. Yeah. Probably this movie more emotionally than Pan's Labyrinth. It's being embraced and loved. And then I was in pre-production on, uh, this movie took six years and I, I had this movie loaded and ready with Searchlight, but I was doing Pacific Rim too. And that juncture came when I could detach myself from Pacific Rim yeah. and do this one, and I took that route. Was this, was this the black and white? Was this, the film, this was supposed to be black and white. So what, what was the change? Was, was that a Fox Searchlight thing, or was yeah. that your own? No, they, they literally said, look, you, if you do it black and white, it's 16 million. If you do it in color, it's 19. And I went, color it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I, I can make miracles, but right. only on certain days. Are you, are you going to, uh, you know, George Miller it on a, uh, a DVD? No. Or is, is there, is there a, a black and white version of this? Or is, yeah. no, no, because in, uh, if you take black and white seriously and religiously like I would. Uh, the, 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 that way, the yeah, the values, shots. Yeah. The values are completely different. Yeah. You know, we would have used red filters. We would have made, given you the mid-range, the mid-tones. The movie would have been color-coded to react to black and white. Right. You know, so makeup would have been weird. The clothing would have been weird. But in black and white, it would have looked good. Um, I haven't seen many fairy tales that, that begin with uh, a woman masturbating in a tub. <laughs> Again, a credit to you and sort of like um, that's not in the playbook. But um, I think that, and you know, I think you referenced maybe last night, like, you know, Disney princesses, they're fine, but that's, but this is, this is, this is an adult fairy tale. Uh, just give me a sense of sort of like, I mean, the sexuality on display in the film, probably more sex and nudity than you've put in film before. Well, that, that was one of the points where I, I really said, I gotta, I gotta rephrase myself. Because yeah. uh, that's, that's an aspect that I have been prudish in the past. Literally, not just cautious, but prudish. Yeah. And, and, and Crimson Peak was a, step forward into concerns that were more adult. Mm -hmm. They were less about me being a kid, you know? And, and, and one of the things I wanted uh, was, was to say, look, if I do Beauty and the Beast, there are two versions that normally exist. The, the Puritan one, yeah. where they just kiss, or he turns into a prince, and then they may someday make love. Or the other one, which I find perverse and kind of creepy, you know, this bestiality thing where, that is titillating. And I thought, can I do a third version in which sex is just a natural component? Right. Where they just fall in love and they do have sex, but it's not prurient or perverse or titillating. That is just part of the beauty of the love. And, and, and I, I said, that's the one I choose. And, and I said, part of it is making the beauty not a princess, mm -hmm. but a regular woman. You know, it makes me wonder what your Beauty and the Beast was going to be. Was was it going to be closer <laughs> in spirit to this, or no? The the Beauty and the Beast I was going to do. I can tell you one thing is it, it is one a tragedy, because uh, I really I think is one of the best screenplays. Uh, that and The Witches, Roald Dahl, remain unproduced, and they they were both really really great screenplays. But you know, maybe one day, maybe, you know, God knows, 10 years from now, yeah. the world will need another Beauty and the Beast. It won't be this. It's very different, but it's very pure, very beautiful. Um, Fantastic Voyage is potentially next. Um, well, I, I decided to, look, I, I, I really, for many reasons, personal, professional, I, I went to, to Fox and I said, look, this is the same company, Fox Searchlight, now, Big Fox. 
And I said, look, I really want to live through the process of launching this movie because it took too much of my blood, too much of my sweat, yeah. too much of my tears. Can I go through it? And then let's meet on the other side and, 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 and talk about it because that happened to me with Devil's Backbone. I was so much into... I, I, I finished shooting Devil's Backbone. Twelve weeks later, I had luck negative. It was mixed. It was delivered. And I was already in pre-production on Blade Two, And I didn't enjoy right. Devil's Backbone, which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And I said, I, I cannot have this happen this time. Well, you've earned the right to enjoy <laughs> the, the spoils of this. Yeah. And, and I asked... I literally said, like a university, I said, can I take a sabbatical? Come back to directing at the end of next year. I, you know, that's all I know. Have you gotten a, a call on the on the red on the, on the bat phone from Disney about Episode Nine for Star Wars? No, <laughs> no not on Episode Nine. No, no, no. <laughs> if they called, would you even take that phone call at this point, or is that? Well, I've stated my desires on that universe in the past. The Jabba movie. Yeah, <laughs> but we shall speak no more. Okay, fair. <laughs> fair enough. What do you make of uh, Andy's success with uh, with it? Have you seen it yet? No. It's a great piece of work. It's great. Look, Andy is the real deal. I think I've had the honor of producing uh, people I admire. I produced Juan Antonio Bayona, yeah. who is, a, a, in my my view, a, a powerhouse of cinema. I produced Jorge Gutierrez, who is, to me, a brilliant guy, and Andy, who is also a cinematic, uh, powerful director, great guy. I, I saw him on the plane uh, on the way to L.A. about two weeks ago, we talked on the way in, we talked on the way out. Love him. This is couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Yeah. And couldn't happen, look, what are we going to get now? It's going to be the 80s all over again. Everybody's going to be doing Stephen King right and left. <laughs> Worst things to uh, enjoy again if they're done right. Yeah, but what, what is, what the lesson to be learned here is you give a guy that really cares, yeah. a book that he really cares about, and a good movie comes out. Andy was completely committed to it. I'm curious about your your perspective, given your love of of, of monsters, on what Universal is doing with this dark universe thing. You must, I don't know, I don't want to presume what your what your take is, but to see what they did with Mummy and, and their future potential plans. Is there? Do you have any perspective on that? Or you... really. I mean, I think I think that uh, you know each studio has an all star team. You know, they have their and the all star team for Universal is the monsters. They're trying something different. I haven't seen the mummy. Mm-hmm. I was shooting, posting, cutting, right. mixing. I haven't, you know, I haven't gone to the movies much right. because I've been making this one. But uh, you know, I, I think they, they were they were very kind with me, and uh, they gave me back all my development material for Frankenstein, so I can do my Frankenstein somewhere else. Yeah, you know, and uh, and I'm thankful for that. So. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the cast in this too, because they're too uh, amazing to to ignore. Um, like to a man, like whether it's Doug Jones, who you've obviously have a very close relationship with, um, but someone like Sally and Mike Shannon, Richard Jenkins, all of them, Stolberg, Octavia. Um, I, I would suppose, suppose also this the, the lower budget maybe gives you more freedom to put like a Sally Hawkins okay. in the lead of a film like well, this. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about this movie is. Um, when I, when I went to Searchlight, uh, I, I, I started working on it in 2012. Started working, the idea came in 2011. 20, 2012 uh, was a year where I self-financed, um, which is not even on the budget. I self-financed uh, uh, for uh, two years. A team designing the creature, a team designing the lab, 
a team designing the look of the movie before even a production designer came on board. And, and then I, I did uh, an A to Z document that took you through the story. And it was always for Sally. Because uh, I had seen her first in Fingersmith, mm -hmm. which is a BBC series where she falls in love with a woman in Victorian times. And it's a murder, a thriller. And their, their story was not prurient. It was, you know, her having sex with a woman was not the defining characteristic. It was part of right. who she was. And I, I loved that. I said, this is great. Uh, then I saw her in uh, a movie called Happy Go Lucky, which is beautiful and shows you that she can achieve a state of grace that is gorgeous, that is, in my opinion, similar to the, the purity of Stan Laurel mm -hmm. and Laurel and Hardy. You know? And then I saw her in Submarine, Richard Rajoud's uh, movie, right. where she basically has a, a supporting role, but she's silent most of the time, and you go, oh, she can carry a movie on her own. And then I was already writing for her, when Blue Jasmine came out, and I thought, I better hurry. <laughs> She's going to explode. Yeah. But uh, that, that's, to me, also the, the thing I wanted was somebody that was beautiful in her own way. That was not, you know, the worst thing you can do is have this uh, movie, and then the cleaning lady is some right. actor. Act, or whatever. <laughs> well, a model, a model-like uh, actor. You know, I wanted somebody that could be real, mm -hmm. but was beautiful in her own way and otherworldly and 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 had uh, that you could believe that she had a sincerity and a luminosity and you, you mentioned i mean you know she the invisible people that this film is is really about the people that that films aren't even really made about generally speaking you've kind of like switched kind of um uh, roles very significantly in this film did, i'm curious like did you feel like an invisible person growing up did you yeah of course I did. I mean, look, uh, sort of and not, because I was very visible because I was, uh, if you, you've seen photos of me as a kid, I was like Rutger Hauer blonde <laughs> when I was a child. Yeah. I was like, like albino almost. Right. And in Mexico, that's very noticeable. But at the same time, I tried to make myself invisible, you know. Yeah. But, but it's about, um, that's why the movie is set in 62, because it's about, all the invisible people coming together yeah. to save each other, basically. And because they do save each other. In saving the creature, they save each other. And they, they save themselves. And, 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 and Shannon, who is a, a character that has all the certainty in the world, the Norman Vincent Peale uh, positive thinking, yep. you know, that thinks he controls everything, turns out he doesn't control not even his own body. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's this this funny paradox that works in the fairy tale. And it's fascinating to see, like, you know, he goes back to, like, his Norman Rockwell-esque existence that, that, you know, that some people still cling to to this day, like, you know, to, to make America great again, you know, whatever, credo. But, like, he's the most fucked up of all of them, and well, it's, yeah. Well, he, he is the only character that is perverse. Yeah. You know, somebody very wisely said, no matter what act you do, there's no perversion if there's no perversion. You know, as long as it's consensual and there's no perversion in it, no matter what you do, it's, it's, it's beautiful. But Shannon, this same person said, uh, if you are a Victorian gentleman and you are perverse about kissing somebody in the cheek, that act is perverse. Right, exactly. But, you know, Shannon <laughs> is the most kinky, 
is supposedly the straight man yeah. is the kinkiest guy on the movie. You know? his, his, I mean, it's not quite his introduction scene, but it is kind of his introduction scene in the bathroom is remarkable yeah. without ruining anything. But like just the, the small um, idiosyncrasies that, uh, that yeah. it, yes, fantastic. Um, give me, I mean, has the meaning of this film changed even in the last year, given our insanely changing and difficult times that we're, we're living in? I, I think that it certainly makes everything more timely. But you know, the thing the thing that is funny is uh, obviously the movie was developed over six years. Yeah, I've been wanting to do it since I was a child. You know, the basic story. But uh, for me, as a Mexican that has gone through immigration time and time again, it's it's never really quite. I never bought into the illusion that things were much better, you know? So, because uh, to me, every time I go through immigration, it's like Midnight Express. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like the heart is pounding, and, you know, you're going you're gonna to be interrogated no matter what. Right. Don't take me to that other room, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been taken to the other room, you know, a few times, you know? Um, I expect this isn't going to screen at the White House. What do you think Trump's uh, interpretation? He, I, I, the most misguided interpretation of this film will be from Donald Trump. I can only imagine. I don't think they'll ask for it. No, no they'll, they'll ask for something else. That Mike Shannon guy, he's, that guy's got something. That character, <laughs> he, he, he gets it. He may get secretary or something. <laughs> that Strickland. Um, but watching these actors work, who I would think come at, I mean, Mike is such a singular performer in, in the, and, and, and a, and a, a truly, yeah, I mean, he's my favorite actor, basically, generally. I have, like, I have multiple photos of him hanging in my office, basically, because I'm just obsessed with him. But do they all, are, are, you know, you've worked with all manner of actor. Is it still like a gas for you to kind of watch people interpret your words in different ways and come at it from different perspectives? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, I, I tell you, the, the joy... The joy as a director is to to observe your performers. Not, you know, people say you guide them. You don't. You really, you really just play with them. And 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 fifty percent of directorial wisdom is casting. Yeah. But to see Jessica Chastain uh, do uh, Crimson Peak was like watching a, a purebred racehorse win the greatest derby in the world. Same with this cast of actors. You know, same with. Uh, my experience with Crimson, my experience with these guys, ideal experiences, you know. Uh, what what I think is nice here is that there are moments for each. For example, Richard Jenkins has the chance to be, uh, do a little bit of a betrayal in the middle of the movie. Shannon has the chance of being vulnerable in the middle of the movie. Yeah. You see why he's in the predicament he is. Each of the characters gets a little break from 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 just being that character, yep. and to see this actor deliver, I mean, to, as for a director, is amazing. Shannon, I tell you, is in another. He really is. He is. He's, he's <laughs> in another world. You mentioned, by the way, the lastly uh, on uh, Chastain when I visited the exhibit out in LA, your remarkable I- exhibit. Um, I'm. I, I just want the uh, painting of the mom hanging <laughs> hanging in my apartment. So if you have an extra one lying around, let me know. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great. Uh, it's the funniest moment. That, that moment in that film is so great. It still cracks me up. <laughs> you know, I I I I thought uh, I thought it, it was it was such a good joke when she says mother. Oh my and God. Then you, it kills me still. <laughs> you look at that that portrait is it just is like Frau Blucher. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you have a lot more talking to do for a good cause uh, with other people today. Um, honestly, I'm so happy for you and, and, and thrilled that um, 
this film exists in the universe in these times. And uh, I know we'll be talking more in the months to come, but um, it's good to see you, bud. All right, man. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha, ha, ha.